Hello, and welcome to Speaking of Research. I'm Professor Trish Ray, and this podcast is one in our series from the Alberta School of Business at the University of Alberta. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Assistant Professor Madeline Tubiana, whose research focuses on complexity, emotions, and stigmatization, and how these play a role in the process of social change. To understand the dynamics of social change, she examines the intersection and interaction between individuals and institutional systems. It's a real pleasure to welcome you here today, Madeline. Hi, Trish. It's a real pleasure to be here. So let's talk about your work. Madeline, your work examines some very complex organizations, such as the Canadian prison system, the sex trade, social entrepreneurship, and social media. Today, I want to focus on one of your papers that's recently published and looks at institutional de-identification in the context of prisons. I understand your paper is going to appear December 2020 in the uh, next issue of the Academy of Management Journal, a very prestigious and top management journal. The article's titled, Once in Orange, Always in Orange, Identity Paralysis and the Enduring Influence of Institutional Logics on Identity. Can you briefly tell us a bit more about your research and the puzzle that you were trying to address? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this paper is really about how individuals can disentangle themselves from institutions and even more specifically their identity from the institutional logics that govern a particular institution. If you kind of understand institutions to be patterns of social activity, shared scripts, taken for granted assumptions that are guided by an overarching institutional logic, or maybe in very simple terms, worldview, you know that as individuals, we are and become embedded in various institutions. And many of these come to shape our understandings of who we are, our sense of self, our identity. Um, and when that happens, we're said to identify with that institution and its logic. However, individuals often make transitions across or between dis distinct social spheres. They're moving between institutions. And that means that the logics that are appropriate in one sphere might not be in another. And if you move to a different situation where one might be no longer inappropriate, you need to be able to disentangle yourself from that. You need to be able to de-identify. Um, and so in this paper, I'm, I really sort of set out to ask, what happens when individuals need or desire to disentangle their identities from institutions? And the puzzle really that this is about is that the literature kind of has characterized this as relatively easy. If people want to disentangle themselves, if people want to de-identify it, they can, snap. But in the real world, quote unquote, I used the, the bunny ears there around what I just said, that doesn't happen so easily. If you think about the classic saying, once uh, always uh, people, once they become embedded in, in an institution, once they've identified and it becomes a shape for themselves can be really sticky and resilient. So I sought to really illuminate what might stall or support de-identification with institutions. And I do this by examining previously incarcerated men's efforts to de-identify with the logics associated with prison as a total institution as they transition back into society. It's kind of an extreme case that illuminates these dynamics for us more broadly. It's very interesting work, Madeline. Um, can you tell us what you think the big takeaways are from your paper? Yeah, that's a really good question. 
One of the big ones for me is that institutions have a durable impact on identity. As I hinted earlier, recent perspectives, both in the institution and identity literature, have focused a lot on individual agency and kind of adopted this toolkit perspective where people swap between institutional logics and identities at will with ease. And my paper kind of reorients and reminds us of the powerful and durable ways in which institutions shape our identities, even when we desire to change them. Um, and then I think importantly, I unpack what contributes to this durable influence and identify factors that can support or stall one's ability to disentangle themselves from institutions. The second kind of piece that I think might be relevant and an important takeaway from the paper is a little bit um, more practical. Total institutions like prisons as one example, but there's many different types from refugee camps, military, um, asylums. They're prolific across society, but we don't study them. Um, importantly, while we've looked into these settings uh, and seen what happens inside of them, we really study people's transitions out of them. And even more significantly, we don't account for the ways in which such institutions have a lingering impact on people's identity. Uh, total institutions are often designed to be temporary. Nobody designs a refugee camp for people to stay in there forever. You're not in, you don't go, most of the time you're not, prisons are supposed to be rehabilitating. But they have lasting impacts even upon release. And I show why and why, why that might be and what we can do to minimize or reduce this impact and increase success in transitions. Thank you. Uh, those are certainly important topics. And I think societally things that everyone needs to consider in a lot more detail than we have in the past. Um, I'd really like to hear more about the background of this paper. I know it's based on your dissertation work, but what else can you tell us about the origins of this paper? Uh, well, it's kind of interesting because indeed it was part of my um, dissertation and it really stemmed out of my early interest. When I started my PhD, I was like really looking at CSR, corporate social responsibility and social entrepreneurship. And I was looking at a lot of these settings and I came to realize that one reason such initiatives were failing a lot at that time uh, was because people couldn't leave behind the mindset they had been socialized or trained into, what I theoretically talk about in this paper maybe as an institutional logic. Business professionals couldn't leave the business logic or the business worldview behind. And at the same time that I was trying to study this personally, and I was interested in this, there was also this call for everything to be more interdisciplinary. This notion all around that blending and hybridizing was the way to positive social change. And, but the problem kept being the same thing, that people's identities and understandings of the world were not shifting as they tried to blend. And that was creating conflict and problems and things weren't working. So I started to really wonder at that time about de-identification. How do we unstick ourselves or disentangle ourselves from institutions and these dominant ways of thinking? And uh, I knew about the prison context because it so happens that my father uh, was a forensic psychiatrist, spent his life in prisons. And I knew about the challenges that these, these men and women faced. And I, I realized that this was a really extreme case that could allow us to zoom in on an important phenomena that cross cut a big social problem that I was interested in. Yeah, every paper has a story. And this one is, is really um, a strong one and interesting. So thank you for sharing that. So when we think about more theoretically, the kinds of work that you're doing here, you talk about three distinct logics that have influence on the identity of a person. 
And can you explain your ideas here? Yeah, so the three logics that I identified, um, they came out of the prison context. So there's sort of these three dominant logics um, facing individuals who are incarcerated. And they come not only from correction systems or the government, the institute, but also the prisoners themselves. And these three logics was, um, were the public safety logic. If you wanna get your idea around that, think criminals are bad guys who deserve punishment. Uh, the rehabilitative logic, and here you can think about um, mental illness, addiction, being a victim of troubled upbringing, you, that sort of mentality, that's sort of the thinking behind that logic. And the jailhouse, lo jailhouse logic, sorry, that it comes from the prisoners themselves. And this is, I'm a tough guy, I'm trapped by an unjust system. So those are kind of just synopsis of what those big logics are. But what I discovered um, when I was looking at my, my data is that these logics um, kind of define the rules of the game in prison. And they were associated not just with rules, but identity prescription and other content such as narratives. And when I started to dig deeper into the impact of these logics on the previously incarcerated, I kind of discovered that Goffman was right. Total institutions really do strip people of their past identities and tie them to new ones. My participants explained to me that during incarceration, they came to view themselves as criminals, the public safety logic, tough guys, the jailhouse logic, or victims of addiction, mental illness, the rehabilitative logic. Um, what the problem was is that these logics were sticky. So upon release, the incarcerated men, they had to find new ways of seeing themselves to become quote unquote productive members of society. They had to find new uh, institutions to grab a hold of to make sense of themselves. But this wasn't easy, contrary to what people might think. Um, I found that they got stuck in their identifications with these logics, experiencing what I call in the paper identity paralysis. They were relying on the logics of incarceration to define and explain themselves even after a release from prison. Um, and so my paper is really about unpacking why this can happen um, and in doing so show the really durable and impact that logics can have on identity. Yeah, important important components of our, our literature and our theory. And I can see how those concepts can apply to other settings, even though you're looking at them in this extreme context. So it's fascinating work. Can you explain your approach and the value of engaging in what seems to me like it was a very intensive process of data collection and data analysis? Thanks, Trish. It was intense, <laughs> you're right. Um, and to sort of answer the second question there, there's a huge value in collecting this type of data during your PhD process. And to all those PhD students out there that are listening, if you are listening, um, get the best data you can during your dissertation. This is your moment to, to be as thorough and comprehensive as you can. Um, and I, yeah, I can't underestimate the importance of that. But as for your second question, really about my approach, as you said, it's a qualitative study, but this qualitative study has two kind of really different components because I'm bringing together a macro concept with this institutional logics with a micro concept, which is identity. So I can't use the same methods or even data necessarily to capture both phenomena. Um, so the first thing I did in this study was really try and understand corrections as a field prisons as organizations and what's going on there that influences the individuals within them. And to do that, I collected 
a huge amount of archival data from all of the players um, within the field of corrections, um, government actors, corrections officers themselves, variety, thousands upon thousands of pages. And then I did more of a content analysis type of qualitative work. And what I did is I read over all these documents to try and identify what were the dominant institutional logics prevalent in corrections. And I identified that through common ways of saying things, identifiable rules. And through that process, I came to identify those three uh, logics that I mentioned to you early. And then later I cross-checked them with other work that's been done in criminology to make sure that I wasn't making these up out of nowhere. And indeed, they, they seem to hold. And importantly then, after I've kind of checked what was happening in the field, what were the dominant logics, I came back and turned back to the previously incarcerated men. So I interviewed men in the midst of transition. So men who had just been released from prison, who were actively trying to reintegrate into society. And I spoke to them and accessed them through a reintegration organization to, to, to make sure that they were trying to reintegrate. Um, and what I did with these interviews uh, was begin to, I first kind of just started to do this open coding classic thing where I just wanted to see what was coming out of the interviews. But I saw these logics coming through in their interviews. And what I began to realize is that these three logics um, came definitely to shape their identities uh, during incarceration and afterwards. Um, and like I said before, they came to explain themselves in this way. Uh, but what I noticed, began to notice as I was looking is that some people did this in the present and some people did it in the past. So I started finding variants within the individuals based on their use of logics to define themselves. And that allowed me to identify people who were successful in de-identification who were not. And then I spent more inductive coding trying to tease apart the differences between them. And that's kind of the, the mechanisms that I tease apart in the findings of my paper. That's a really nice short explanation of something that takes a really long time <laughs> and a really lot of work. So thanks for that. Um, so clearly this paper makes an important contribution to our understanding de-identification and to the institutional logic perspective and even to the practical challenge of exit from total institutions. Can you tell us, is this paper tying into your next work or your current work or your program of work? How do you see things coming together for you? Yeah, I, I, I like that question. Um, because somebody once told me that uh, a productive way of building a research identity is to have it like a tree, like there's a trunk of a tree, which is this driving program, and you can have lots of different branches. Um, and to me, this, this paper is a, at the core of my research program, because my, my research is really interested in about what stalls or supports social change. And although a lot of research out there, including some of my own, studies change in organizations or in fields, Social change also needs to manifest in the people who inhabit organizations and institutions, right? Um, we are shaped by the institutions we inhabit and become socialized into worldviews, logics, whatever you want to call them, that are associated with these institutions. And this can lead actors to be inflexible and prevent opportunities for change. And this project to me is really about better understanding what might be preventing social change at this level. Um, and as we transition and press for hybridization in so many domains, like I mentioned, people might not be able to let go of institutions as easily as we think. And this paper, I kind of try and push that. And to me, that's really part of this broader agenda that I have about social change. 
The other piece um, that ties into, and actually this paper was kind of instrumental in motivating this direction of my research is the impact of stigmatization specifically on social change. Uh, and we see that in, in this paper about how labeling and how stigmatization of these individuals is one of the factors that really prevents them or stalls their efforts at de-identification. And so my research trajectory from, from this paper has focused a lot on stigmatization and social change specifically. Um, so that's kind of where this um, paper inspired my next bits of work. Sounds fantastic. And we'll look forward to the next ones. Um, so as we come towards the end of this podcast, I'm wondering if you have some suggestions or advice that you'd like to share with other scholars who are working on research papers and they hope to have them published in journals like the Academy of Management Journal. You know, this is a, is, is a great question and here are my tips. Be, take them with a grain of salt, right? Uh, there may be a bit of luck in all of these processes. But the first thing is get your work out there. I know like we could work on our craft forever and ever. You could write and rewrite a paper and it never is perfect and it never will be perfect. That's a part purpose of the review process, right? And even still, it's not going to be perfect. So if you spend too much time overthinking where your manuscripts are, you can't get them out there to get the feedback you need to. Um, we're going to get rejections and those help better your papers and set them on the right trajectory. So that's the first thing, get, you know, get your, get your work out there. The other one is be patient. Uh, this project was my dissertation paper and I started my dissertation a long time ago. Maybe I shouldn't tell you, I don't know. Um, but you know, no, I started the, the data collection for this project in 2011. Uh, and this it's coming out the next next month, a month from now. So that's that's a long time. Uh, you have to spend that much time with a paper, not hopefully not that much time. Sometimes it could be, go a lot quicker, but the point is take your time, um, be patient with yourself and the process, it, especially if you want to, to go for those top tier journals. It takes a lot of time, a lot of revisions. I just want to really emphasize uh, to all of those scholars out there who get second guess themselves are wondering about what they believe in their paper that believe in your vision for the paper people will tell you different things about what your paper should or shouldn't be have faith in your vision and then um, be flexible with the review process but stay true to who you are as a researcher and the question that you're really seeking to answer Thanks for thanks for this Madeline um, I really appreciate talking with you today about your paper Thanks, Richard. It was fun to do this. Uh, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. If you'd like more information about this paper and about Assistant Professor Madeline Tubiana's research, or if you'd like to listen to other podcasts in our series, please visit the Alberta School of Business Research webpage. Now, to close this episode of Speaking of Research, I'll remind you that I'm Professor Trish Ray at the Alberta School of Business at the University of Alberta. Thank you for listening.